Take your Bibles and turn to Philippians chapter 2. Philippians chapter 2, Pastor Nate is going to be sharing with us um, from the Word this morning, and, uh, but uh, he asked me to come and read uh, his passage, so it'll be Philippians chapter 2, and I'm, I'm thankful that uh, he is willing to preach for a couple of reasons. First of all, um, we were on vacation the last week and a half, um, baking in the sun of North Carolina. Uh, we had a great time, um, but uh, we decided to drive back in one day, so drove 17 hours yesterday, so my mind is mush, so I don't think I would probably do a good job up here anyway, so I appreciate that. But secondly, and I mean this sincerely, um, I do not often get an opportunity to sit and listen to Pastor Nate preach, and whenever I do, I, I just, it's, I'm so encouraged. So this is um, great for me to be able to sit and hear uh, what God has laid on his heart. So I'm going to read uh, Philippians chapter 2 and verses 1 through 11. You can follow along as I read. So if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Pastor. This morning I want to lead us through one of the most Christ-focused, Christ-revealing, and Christ-exalting passages, I believe, in the entire Bible. We've been looking all around Philippians in different weeks throughout this year, and each time we see Paul convincing us that we have been created to find our joy in God alone. And he shows us what that looks like in different areas of our lives. So last week... Uh, we looked in Philippians chapter 4 and found that finding our joy in God affects the way that we give and the way that we grieve. But this week we're looking at a passage that not only shows us how finding our joy in God changes the way that we think and act, this passage shows us Christ himself. Philippians 2 shows us the very mind of Jesus Christ. How does Jesus think, and how does he perceive himself, and how does he view the people in the world? But Jesus doesn't just want to reveal his own mind in this passage. Through the Apostle Paul, he wants to show us how we can have his mind as well. He doesn't just want us to peek through life through the lens of the Savior. Instead, he wants us to see life through that same perspective permanently. He doesn't just want to show us his mind, 
He wants to change our mind. And so this morning we're going to look at the mind of Christ and we're going to see what it looks like when Christ changes your mind. So Philippians 2, 1 through 11 that we just read there is one unified passage, but this morning we're just going to focus on verses 3 through 8, which is really the heart of the passage. Now as I mentioned last week, this letter is a friendship letter from Paul to the Philippian church. He wants to let them know that the gospel is advancing far and beyond in very surprising ways. And the reason why it's surprising is because Paul himself is writing to them under house arrest, meaning he's not free to help them in advancing the gospel where he was before. So you would think the gospel would be stifled, but instead Paul says the gospel is advancing, and he's writing to tell the Philippians all about it. But he does have to encourage the Philippians to be unified in the gospel at all times. There were some who were preaching the gospel out of envy or rivalry. If we look in chapter 1, verse 15, we would see Paul talking about those people. And Paul desperately wants to see the Philippians striving together side by side for the advancement of the gospel. In Philippians 2.2, he tells them that it would satisfy him greatly if they would be of the same mind, have the same love, be in full accord in one mind. But how do we accomplish that? How do you maintain the unity of the gospel in a church that is under attack by division? Paul makes it clear that disunity is one of the greatest enemies of the church. He's, he's saying that all over this epistle. So how do we defend against disunity? How do we protect First Baptist Church of Mishawaka from falling prey to the dangers of disunity? The answer isn't complex. It's actually quite simple. And Paul tells us in the passage we're looking at today, the answer is to have the mind of Christ. And Paul tells us in this passage that when we have the mind of Christ, we will actively pursue the kind of unity that makes a church strong and effective in advancing the gospel. So what does the mind of Christ look like? What happens when Christ changes your mind. Let's start by reading verse 3. Paul says, Do nothing from selfish ambition, or perhaps your translation says rivalry, or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Paul wants the Philippians to be unified in the gospel, and he knows that's not going to happen so long as they're they are motivated by selfish ambition, the desire to exalt themselves over those who are around them. The command here is a double negative in Greek, which you may have heard puts the absolute emphasis on the negative, meaning he's literally saying, never do nothing from selfish motivation. Never do nothing. Don't ever be motivated to peddle the gospel like a mercenary who is in it for personal profit or gain. The Philippians were never going to unite for the cause of the gospel the way that God was calling them to 
so long as they were jockeying for personal recognition. And folks, we won't ever stand united for the cause of the gospel today so long as we are more concerned about being recognized for our ministry than participating in the ministry itself. In fact, we can't put the gospel first when we're busy trying to make ourselves look necessary to the cause. The truth is that we're not necessary. It's an immense privilege to partake and participate in the ministry that God has given us here at our church. But we really need to take it a step further. We can't put the gospel first so long as we are focused on putting our individual programs or ministries first either. The gospel isn't first if we put the worship choir first. Don't get me wrong, I want us to have a worship choir. I think it contributes to our worshiping God together in our worship service. But if the worship choir becomes a hindrance to our church's overall mission, we need to stop having a worship choir. Now read me correctly, I'm not saying we're going to stop having a worship choir. But if it hinders the gospel in our mission, we need to. The same goes for any other individual ministry. Now I'll be honest, I've received a lot of positive feedback from our inclusion of more instruments and lead voices in our congregational singing time. The worship team practices every week to serve the congregation. And in fact, every week at 8 a.m. during the school year, we say our purpose statement together. We exist as a team to serve, support, and strengthen the congregation in the worship and exaltation of Jesus Christ. And everybody in the worship team was mouthing it together with me as I said it there. But, folks, if the worship team impedes our mission as a church, we stop having a worship team. Our programs are not sacred in and of themselves. If we try to exalt our own ministries, whether it's Awana, VBS, Sunday School, Growth Groups, or Young at Heart, we're missing the point. Our church is called to worship God, grow together, serve others, and reach the world. That's what God is calling us to do. And the programs are our means of accomplishing those purposes. The programs change, but our God-given purposes never change. So let's humbly minister with the gifts that God has given us to the advancement of the gospel, not the advancement of our programs. Paul says that we shouldn't do anything from selfish ambition or conceit, but instead, in humility, we are to count others as more significant than ourselves. This statement is very carefully worded, and it's powerful. The King James Version says we are to esteem others better than ourselves. Both versions do a good job of expressing that we are to count, we are to esteem, we are to consider something to be the case. But notice that Paul doesn't say that we are to recognize that people are better than we are. That's something totally different. My wife is better than I am at playing the piano. No competition there. Okay? But I'm better than she is at selling. She found out pretty early that she was never meant to go into sales. 
Paul isn't saying that I have to recognize that she's better than I am at something like sales because she's not. And she doesn't have to recognize that I'm better at playing the piano because I'm not. Instead, Paul says that I am to consider that she is more significant than I am. And she is to consider that I am more significant than she is. And you are to consider that the person sitting next to you in your seat is more significant than you are. And folks, that's something that takes humility. Especially with some of the people who are sitting next to you. (laughs) It would turn the world on its head if every person thought of everyone else as more significant than they are. That would take radical humility. And that's exactly what Paul calls the Philippians to do And that's what God calls us to do in Philippians 2, verse 3. So when Christ changes your mind, he exchanges your selfish motives for others' exalting motives. Instead of selfishly looking at every situation for what you can get out of it, or for how you can get ahead, or for how you can get others to look to you and say, wow, what a great leader. Or, He really is gifted at serving in that way. Or she always has the perfect words to say in every situation. Or instead of trying to get people to look at you, Paul says that we should be looking for ways to exalt other people. We should be actively trying to treat other people as more significant than we are. In other words, when Christ exchanges your self-exalting motives for others' exalting motives, instead of looking down at others, we will look up at others. Not necessarily because they are better than we are in any specific way, but because Christ commands us to treat them as more significant than we are. So how about you? Do you look down on others, or do you look up at others? Adults, do you treat the children and youth of this church as more significant than yourselves by loving them? Or do you look down on them? Do you care for their souls and their relationship with Christ? Or do you wish they would just stay out of the way? Teens, do you treat everyone else in the youth group as more significant than yourselves? Or do you exalt yourself? Are you preoccupied with making yourself look good? Younger people, that's people my age, okay? Younger people, do you look up to the believers who are in their 70s and 80s and 90s? Or do you look down on them? Chronologically advanced believers, Do you consider the younger people in this church as more significant than yourselves? Or do you look down on them? When Christ changes your mind, he exchanges your self-exalting motives for others' exalting motives. You look up at others, not down at them. But that's not all. Notice what Paul says in verse 4. He says, let each of you look not only to his own interests, 
but also to the interests of others. Now, the instruction in verse 3 addressed our perspective. This admonition addresses our focus. What are we focusing on? Paul says not only to look to your own interests, since you naturally do that, and you don't need a command to tell you to look to your own interests, but you are also to look to the interests of others. Now, the language here is peculiar because the word interests is actually not in the original language. The sentence is left very open-ended so that we wouldn't pigeonhole any particular subject. Look not only to your own finances, but also to the finances of others. Look not only to your own health, but also to the health of others. Look not only to your own house, but also to the houses of others. Look not only to your own kids, but also to the kids of others. Now, before we get the wrong idea, I want to make something clear. Paul isn't saying that we are to impose our own authority on the interests of others, meaning he doesn't say that we're supposed to tell others how they're supposed to be using their money. Okay? He doesn't say we should tell others what exercise regimen they should be following for their health, unless you're their doctor. He doesn't say we should be telling others which house they should buy. And he doesn't say that we must tell, tell others how they should raise their kids. But he does say that we are to be concerned about these things just as we are concerned about our own things. If you treat others as more significant than yourselves, you will care about the different facets of their lives and seek to come alongside them and help them in a humble way, just as Paul says in this passage. We care when people in our church are struggling with their finances, and we seek to come alongside them as those who are more significant than we are and help them to the glory of God. We are concerned when believers are sick or struggling physically, and we want to help them by providing meals or mowing their lawn. We help people who are moving houses because we see them as more significant than we see ourselves. And we lovingly seek to come alongside families with kids at home and help them disciple those children by being a mentor or a positive influence on them. And these are just a handful of the interests that Paul is talking about here. The point is that when Christ changes your mind, he doesn't just exchange your self-exalting motives for others' exalting motives, but when he changes your mind, he exchanges your self-serving mentality for an others' serving mentality. In other words, we don't just look up at others and not down at them. We also look out at others, not in at ourselves. Folks, when we come to our worship gathering each week, if we see others as more significant than ourselves, we should be on the lookout for ways to serve other people and show concern for their interests. It's easy to come into the sanctuary, go through the motions of a worship service, and then go home to our normal lives. But what if we sought to worship God by serving others? What if we got to know them in such a way 
that we knew their needs, their hopes, and their struggles. Now, I'll admit, this isn't an easy thing to do on Sunday morning. There just isn't much time for life-touching-life conversation. But this doesn't mean that we shouldn't try at least to touch one other person's life each Sunday and count them as more significant than we count our own comfort. But folks, this is exactly why we have growth groups. They are the perfect format for us to gather in the middle of our busy lives on a weekly basis and show each other that we consider others to be more significant than we consider ourselves. We can take the time to learn what struggles someone who's older than we are is going through. We can pray with someone who is younger than we are. We can mentor one another as we seek to apply the word of God that was preached to us on Sunday. And we can actually get to know each other's needs enough to know how we can serve one another's interests just as we serve our own interests. We look up at others, not down at them, and we look out at others, not in at ourselves. You may say this is all very fine and good, but isn't it a little too idealistic? I mean, who actually does this kind of thing? And if God wants us to do this, why doesn't he give us a clear example of what it would look like? Well, that's a good question. And thankfully, God does give us the perfect example of what it looks like to consider others as more significant than we consider ourselves and then acting upon that perspective in humble service. Where do we find that? Let's look together at verse 5. Paul says, have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. This is a verse that I think actually the King James translates a little bit better because it says, let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. Meaning, that this mindset of looking up at others and looking out at others, make it your mindset because it's the very mindset that Jesus Christ showed to us all. And what the ESV is saying here is true as well. The only way that we can make this mindset ours is because it is given to us in Christ Jesus. Unless we are in Christ by being saved by him, we can never have this mindset because the power ultimately comes from Christ alone. This mindset is ours in Christ Jesus. And so when Christ changes your mind... He exemplifies, he gives you an example of the right attitude that you should have and empowers you to change your mind. How did Jesus display this kind of a mindset? Paul tells us in the next three verses, which are part of what we think is probably one of Christianity's earliest hymns. The next few verses beautifully and poetically show us the mind of Christ. Let's read them together. Who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, 
And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. The scriptures tell us that Jesus was in the form of God. Now we could mistakenly read this, as some others have, that this means that Jesus appeared to be like God. Though he wasn't actually God. But this interpretation doesn't really make sense in the context of the passage, if not in the context of the rest of the Bible. The word form is the word morphe, which refers to the very substance of which something is made up of. So if Jesus was in the morphe of God, he was made up of the very same stuff that God is made up of. And if you're made up of the same stuff that God is, then you are God. The point is that Jesus, though he was every bit God, he didn't count equality with God a thing to be grasped, something to be held on to at all costs, something to be used for his own advantage. Now the surprising point of the statement is that the oriental gods that the people worshipped during Paul's time supposedly were grasping selfish gods that did everything they could to hold on to their own power. So that's exactly what people in the Philippians area would expect from a god, is that he's grasping onto his power. And in a shocking twist, Paul says that Jesus, who as God, had every right to be considered as greater than all. But instead, he counted, he esteemed, he considered his own divinity as something that he didn't need to use for his own advantage. Wow. We often feel like we need to assert ourselves and promote ourselves when we feel like we aren't recognized for our own qualities or strengths. But Paul says that Jesus didn't consider his status as something to be clenched tightly. So, teenager, when you wonder why you should treat others in your youth group as more significant than you are, because you think you're better than they are or they don't deserve it, remember that Jesus as God didn't look at mankind and say, I'm more important than they are, so I have no reason to stoop and save them. Bosses, when you're tempted to take advantage of your employees because, well, they're employees and you're the boss, stop. Remember that Jesus didn't view his godness as something to be used to his own advantage or to exploit others. Husbands, don't treat your wives harshly because you are the authority in the home. Remember that Jesus holds all authority in heaven and on earth and he didn't grasp for authority. Jesus didn't consider his status as something to be clenched tightly. So what did he do? Look at verse 7. It says, But emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. Now a lot of discussion has taken place over what it means for Jesus to have emptied himself. 
Did he give up some of his attributes as God? What did he give up? Did he stop being God for a little bit? Most of this discussion centers around the fact that when we read the verb empty, we expect there to be an object. If we are to empty a bucket, there must be something in the bucket that must be emptied. Therefore, if Jesus empties himself, he must empty himself of something. But the word kenosis, which is translated as empty here, doesn't require this. The word does mean to empty or to abase. And an older edition of the ESV puts it this way. He made himself nothing. How did Jesus make himself nothing? He did it by taking the form of a servant. And further, by being born just like other men are born. I think the ESV study Bible actually says, uh, addresses this question very well. It says this, does this mean that Christ temporarily relinquished his divine attributes during his earthly ministry? This theory of Christ's kenosis or self-emptying is not in accord with the context of Philippians or with early Christian theology. Paul is not saying that Christ became less than God or gave up some divine attributes, nor is he saying that Christ ever gave up being in the form of God. Rather, Paul is stressing that Christ, who had all the privileges that were rightly his as king of the universe, gave them up to become an ordinary Jewish baby bound for the cross. While he had every right to stay comfortably where he was in a position of power, his love drove him to a position of weakness for the sake of sinful mankind. The emptying consisted of his becoming human, not of giving up any part of his true deity. Think of it. Jesus, the God of the universe, didn't count his status as deity, is something to be used for his own advantage. Just like we are instructed in verse 3 not to count ourselves as more significant than others. But instead, Jesus made himself nothing by serving others, the very same thing that Paul says we are to do in verse 4 by serving the interests of others. Jesus is so very perfectly demonstrating exactly what he requires of us in the earlier verses. He didn't consider his status as something to be clenched tightly, and he instead served the interests of others. So adults, when you think you're too important to serve in the nursery, when you think that your dignity won't allow you to stoop to working with kids, remember that the God of the universe stooped to be born in a barn. He took on human flesh and was born like other humans are born, and he served the least of these and told the little children to come to him. Believer, maybe you're willing to be concerned about the interests of the believers sitting around you, but what about the people who sit in the balcony? or the people who sit in the annex? What about the people who wander into our worship service whom you've never seen before? Will you count them 
is more significant and be concerned about their interests? Will we remain comfortable and serve only our own interests, or will we make ourselves uncomfortable and seek to meet the needs of others? Let's look together at our final verse, verse 8. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. As a climax to Jesus' self-humbling by taking on human flesh, he obeyed. Whom did Jesus obey? Well, ultimately, we know that he obeyed the Father's will. We see in the Garden of Gethsemane, submitting himself to the will of the Father. Not my will, but yours be done. But remember that Jesus, as a Jewish human boy, had many authorities. He had his mom and his dad. He had the parents at his friend's house when he was there. Just think about your growing up years. You have so many authorities. He had to submit himself and obey many people. And in fact, Hebrews 5.8 says, he learned obedience through what he suffered. Consider that. He had all authority and privilege in heaven. Remember, Jesus is in the beginning with God because he is God. He spoke and everything was created. He has that kind of power, that kind of authority. But he humbled himself and obeyed sinful humans. What kind of humility is that? He didn't merely obey, but he obeyed to the point of death. Imagine that. God who lives forever in his humility died. What a paradox. If God would humble himself to the point of death, how far will we humble ourselves before we say, that's enough. I'm above this. Was God above dying for sinful man? What kind of humility is that? And it wasn't just any kind of death. Paul, in quoting this hymn, makes a point to stress that Jesus was willing to endure a shameful death, death on a cross. There was nothing more shameful than death on a Roman cross because it was only bestowed upon the worst of criminals. And yet Jesus was willing to stoop so low for the interests of others, that he endured that kind of shame. What kind of humility is that? So Christ himself humbled himself in obedience, death, and shame. You know, when Paul says in verse 3 that we are to, in humility, count others as more significant than ourselves, he means the kind of humility that God showed by becoming a man, being obedient to sinners, 
dying, enduring the greatest shame imaginable, all to serve the interests of others. So what do you think? Will you have the mind of Christ? Paul says that it's yours in Christ Jesus. So follow Jesus' example in this passage. Let him empower you. Let him change your mind. I want to make a point to say this isn't a self-help message to get you to be a better person. The Bible tells us that we're all sinners and our attempts at doing good are all marred by our sinful nature. We may try as best as possible, but anything we try to do to become a good person, well, it all just fails because we have a sin nature. It corrupts everything we try to do to be good. No, instead, we need to cry out to God and ask him to give us a new heart. Jesus is the only one who could come to earth and humble himself, live a perfect life, never sin once, and then die in our place. In dying, he took the sins of the entire world upon himself and was killed for us. And the reason he did that is so that all who had placed their faith in Jesus Christ, in him alone, they would be saved. God would then take the righteousness of Jesus Christ that he rightly earned and credit it to the account of those who put their faith in him. If you believe in Jesus Christ today, you will be saved. You will be called righteous, not because of anything that you've done, but because Jesus alone is righteous. And today you can leave and know that God looks down at you and he sees somebody who is right with him. Somebody whom he is keeping. Somebody whom he is preparing a place in heaven for you. What an amazing promise. That could have only been done through what we've seen in this passage today in Philippians. Through Jesus leaving the comforts of heaven and dying for us. And not just dying and being buried, but on the third day, the scriptures tell us that God rose him from the dead. He was raised. And Jesus lives today. He's still human. He's still God. Fully both. And he lives to make intercession for us. He speaks to the Father for us. He pleads for us. When we sin, he says, I paid for that sin. They're still righteous. When you fail, he says, I died for that person. They're still righteous. I took the punishment for their sins and died in their place so that they would now live for God. We need Jesus to save us first before he can give us his mind. But when he does save you, this is the work he begins in you. And I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. Will you look up at others as more significant than you? Will you look out at others and serve their interests? Will you allow Christ to change your mind? Let's pray together. Father, we are in awe by this passage. It contains truths so powerful they have endured the test of time. 
They were penned 2,000 years ago as true, and they're still true today, and they still affect us deeply. Father, in a few moments, we're going to come to your table, and we're going to rejoice to know that our sins are paid for, that we are righteous in your sight because of what Christ did by humbling himself and leaving the comforts of heaven to die for us. So we thank you. We thank you for the glory that comes through the shame of a cross. But Father, we recognize that when you save us, you call us to a new kind of living. You call us to have the mind of Christ that is ours through your son, Jesus. You call us to continually have our minds conform to the image of your son. And so we pray this morning that you would help us to have the mind of Christ. Help us to consider others as more significant than we are. Help us to love one another, to care about our interests, not just ours, but those of the people around us, the people in this church, the people outside of this church that you've called us to love in the community here in Mishawaka. Father, one of the most dangerous things that could face our church is disunity. But if we have the mind of Christ, if we serve and love one another, we will not be divided by petty things. So help us to put on the mind of Christ, Father. Help us to have more love for you. In Jesus' name, amen.